Hello, I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host this October 5th, 2020. My guest today is UCI law professor Dave Min, candidate for the California State Senate in the 37th District. This is a partisan race. Dave Min is a Democrat challenging incumbent John Morlock. Dave previously ran in the 2018 midterm election for US Congress in our 45th District. Dave Min's expertise includes business law, credit cards, economics and law and finance, government regulation and policy, mortgages, real estate law, banking securities regulation. Prior to his UCI Law School appointment, Dave Min was for over a decade staff attorney at the Securities and Exchange Commission in practice with the law firm Wilmer Hale for Senator Charles Schumer and Banking Committee, and as Banking Advisor and Counsel for the Joint Committee of Congress. He served on the Center for American Progress, overseeing the efforts of the Mortgage Finance Working Group. Dave Min has appeared on many well-known outlets. Dave Min completed his undergraduate degree at University of Penn's Wharton School of Business and School of Arts and Sciences, and is Juris Doctor at Harvard Law School. He comes to us today from his home in Irvine. Welcome to the show, Dave Min. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. Really appreciate it. Well, it's good to have as many candidates as we can, as there's so much breaking news. I have to timestamp all my interviews in this electoral season, and we are taping this on October 3rd. So, statement in this electoral season, nearly approaching the bazaar, how is your campaign addressing the unwieldy constituent needs? How are your budget priorities being adjusted with the pandemic, the pervasive wildfires, and all of the distressors associated with those colossal, huge developments? Yeah. No, that's a great question. And I guess uh, where I'd start is just to point out that if you'd asked me four years ago if I was ever going to run for any type of elected office, I would have told you no. And in fact, I did tell people no, including my wife. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, this is the second scene I'm running for in two cycles. Um, and so what motivated me to run for Congress in 2018 uh, was the same thing that I think motivated so many people, including myself, to go out there and participate in politics in a way we'd never done before. Uh, I was deeply concerned about what Donald Trump was doing uh, as president. I was deeply concerned about um, our country, our future, uh, and what I viewed as a president who really didn't represent or, or even have respect for uh, the American values I grew up uh, thinking were the core of this country, the values that drew people like my parents uh, who immigrated here in 1971 to this country. Um, and so when I lost that uh, in a close primary to Katie Porter, uh, you know, I, I obviously had some thinking to do. Uh, we knew we had a pretty good profile in this district. Um, uh, a lot of folks had reached out to me to encourage me to run for the state Senate seat, which overlaps uh, largely with the congressional seat I ran in in the last cycle. Uh, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to run for state office. Uh, it took me a while to think about this. Um, you know, part of this was um, 
you know, when, when I, after the election in 2018, uh, Congressman Ted Lieu called me and encouraging me to run for this seat, he, he mentioned that, you know, he's a former state senator and that this is actually the best job he's ever had. It's a job that uh, you, you can use to get things done. Uh, Congress, of course, is, is characterized by gridlock. It's hard to uh, do much other than oversight. And, and um, you know, uh, certainly Katie Porter has done a great job of uh, fulfilling that role um, of, of serving our district. But in general, Congress is not designed to take on bold action, uh, whereas the state legislature, uh, having only 40 members in the state Senate, only 80 members in the state assembly, uh, really is situated to do a lot. Uh, with Democratic majorities, um, you know, right now you can actually get a lot passed. And so <clears throat> it's a job where you can get stuff done. And, and as I thought about that, that was appealing. Uh, what I also came to realize as I thought about our country and its direction is that our problems do not stop and end with Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump, who, as we speak right now, has been hospitalized in the Walter Reed Medical Center. Uh, has been running for president for over 20 years in one form or another. He was elected in 2016, uh, not because he'd suddenly found the secret formula, but rather because I think the country has slipped and too many people today were willing to take a, a risky gamble because they feel like this country does not offer the economic opportunity or the possibility of racial, social, or economic justice uh, that we are long been thought to stand for. Uh, and that, reversing that set of problems, the structural cracks in our foundation is going to take a lot more than just getting Donald Trump out of office. We have to, in my view as a Democrat, win back the White House, ideally win back the U.S. Senate and reverse the damage that Donald Trump has done to our democratic institutions. Uh, but we also have, as Democrats, a responsibility to try to articulate a pathway forward in the 21st century. Uh, what does America stand for? How do we make people believe again uh, that this is a land of opportunity, that, that the American dream is viable, that if you work hard here and play by the rules, you can actually get ahead because too many people right now don't believe that. Well, Dave, we have a, yeah. not a, so, so an unlimited to, amount of time, so just, I want to hope we can work just, with the state yeah, dynamics just, of just the politics. To, just to answer your question, Claudia, uh, to get back to that. So, so finally closing the loop here, I, I guess what I'd say is when I first started this race, uh, if you'd ask me what my top issues were, they were you know, fighting climate change, uh, investing in education, uh, making our economy work for working people again. At this point, though, with COVID, a lot of that's changed. And so the big issues we're facing for the next two years, most likely, are going to be around public health, uh, around uh, reversing our economic decline, and about surviving uh, massive budget pressures over the next two years. Uh, that's what everyone in Sacramento is going to be focused on. So... I'd like to stay with policy, but there, there was a, with the supermajority, there was still a sort of an internal uh, kind of a dynamic that was a problem with concluding this latest legislative session in California. So I, I always like to ask members of the party where there is a, a supermajority in the legislative arena. So uh, does, do you see that, that could, it could be a better uh, resumption of the next in the next legislative session to sort of build goodwill among inside the party to deal with these massive needs with, with an opening, yawning budget deficit in the state of California. I'm not sure I understood the question, Claudia. So I wanted to know if what opportunities you see in the super majority in the party you're running 
whether yeah. that can be effective, how, how that can address the yawning needs in the, the budget deficit with the pandemic, with the, the, the state of the employment development department trying to meet unemployment needs and, yep. and all of those things. It didn't end well this session, but it, it, the supermajority didn't perform as, as well as it could have. How do you see might be a better way of handling that dynamic to meet those needs? Yeah, so I, I guess you're, there's a few different um, points that I think you're raising. Uh, first is how the session ended. And, you know, it's, it, we're in unprecedented waters right now. And I think with the late diagnosis of COVID by Senator uh, Brian Jones, uh, which I think happened just like a couple weeks before the end of the session, maybe even a week before the end okay, of the session, yeah. that threw a monkey wrench in things. Uh, then everyone was, you know, I think because so many Republicans had been exposed uh, to Brian, Senator Jones, uh, including my opponent, uh, John Morlock, uh, they had apparently had a maskless lunch where a number of them uh, conversed and ate uh, in close proximity indoors with no masks on. Uh, so for obvious reasons, uh, much of the Republican caucus was uh, put into quarantine under uh, protocols uh, issued by the state legislature. And so they were participating by Zoom. And I think it was kind of a mess because the Republicans were complaining that this was an unfair process. Uh, and Democrats on the other side thought that Republicans were slow walking this to try to run out the clock on the legislative session so that there was a limit to what the Democrats could do. Uh, I was not part of that, so I, I can't speak from firsthand knowledge. I'm just telling you what has been commonly reported. Uh, you know, I'd like to think I can go in and work with good, in good faith, both with uh, my own party, uh, as well as the Republicans that are left. Now, that all being said, a part of what you're asking is how can I uh, serve my constituents and how can I yeah. do a better job? And, and here's what I would say. Uh, you know, you may note that like in the last six months or so, uh, Senator Morlock has um, finally started to do some bipartisan work. He's worked across the aisle and that's much appreciated and great. But uh, this really happened, it seems like, in response to his, his recognition that he was in a lot of trouble, that his poll numbers were tanking, um, and that the hyper-partisanship that he had demonstrated for the first uh, four years, because he, he actually had served a year before uh, winning his first general ele regular election in 2016. He took office in a special election in 2015. Right. So he's been in office for uh, nearly five years now. And for the first four and a half years of, of, of being in the state Senate, uh, he was known as an iconoclastic, hyper-partisan Republican who almost never worked with the other side. Uh, and so that is a real problem when you're in the super minority. It means you don't get money back for your county or your district. Uh, you don't get your, um, you know, you don't represent your constituents as far as getting your legislative priorities advanced. And, and the proof is in the pudding. I mean, he can't, you know, you can't really point to any significant legislative accomplishments uh, on the part of Senator Morlock. Uh, and, and again, I, I welcome the bipartisan turn he's made in the last few months, but uh, in my mind, it's too little too late. Uh, what I can bring to the table is being at the table, which is I can be part of the discussions of how legislation is shaped, how budgets are formed, and I'll make sure that we bring back uh, both money for Orange County priorities, whether it's infrastructure, housing, uh, mental health services, public safety, or otherwise, uh, and also help to represent the various constituents in this district, including the Republicans. I will flat out say I, I will do a better job of representing Republicans in SD37 than Senator Morlock, simply because I won't be thumbing my nose at the majority party. 
For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI law professor Dave Min, who's a candidate for the California State Senate District 37 for the November 3rd general election ballot. The vote by mail ballots are moving out October 5th. So I guess among many of the things that have been changing as a result of the pandemic are constituents that is UC Irvine and Chapman students, their residency is up for question. They are going to be receiving, if they've not changed their registration, they're gonna be receiving ballots where they were participating in the primary March 3rd. How is your campaign, Dave Min, dealing with those moving targets right now? So we're trying to reach out to all voters. Uh, I'm of the understanding that the University of California is supposed to be informing its student body. Um, and I hope Chapman is undertaking similar uh, outreach efforts uh, of the status of California elections law. And what that says in a nutshell is yeah. that even if you're not residing here right now in this district, if you were registered here in the past and you intend to return here and you consider this your domicile, which I think for most students who plan to return uh, to resume their studies, it, it would be their domicile, then you should vote here, you can vote here, uh, and you are permitted to use your last address and uh, just forward it to your current mailing address, uh, but you are allowed to vote here. And so the basic idea here is what is your intent? You intend to live here going forward, uh, COVID is an interesting example because a lot of people right now are not living here, but they do plan to return whenever we have in-person um, uh, classes again, whether at Chapman, whether at UCI or the uh, various um, community colleges, including Orange Coast College, Saddleback, and otherwise that are in the district. So uh, again, if you're a student and you were registered here and you intend to return, you consider this your domicile, you are allowed to vote here uh, and be a resident of this district. And we're also, we're trying on the KUCI platform to give every bit of voter registrar offices information so that people can see how they can effectively participate. And I, I don't know if you consider yourselves down ticket, but are, are you, is there anything special you're doing to get eyes over here where the, the Senate district races on our general election ballot, Dave Min? Well, we're doing a lot of outreach. Um, and so we're, we're down ballot. We're not as far down ballot as some. I mean, so you'll see me right after Katie Porter versus Greg Ratz. And I would encourage you all to consider voting for Katie, who I think has done a, a tremendous job in, in two years in Congress uh, and certainly deserves to be reelected. But I'll be right after her. So you'll see jo Joe Biden and Kamala Harris versus the other presidential candidates. You'll see Katie Porter versus Greg Ratz. And then my race is right after that. Uh, one of the things we are encouraging all voters to do is, is not just stop with me, to but to continue voting down ballot. Uh, so a lot of UCI students will have Cotty Petrie Norris versus Diane Dixon. Uh, please consider voting in that race. Uh, further down, you have uh, Irvine City Council, and, and that's very important for things like affordable housing, which is a very important issue for UCI students, uh, as well as things like uh, you know addressing local climate change and trying to reduce local carbon emissions. Uh, quality of life, bike paths, traffic, uh, that a lot of that is driven by the city council. And so I consider, I, I urge UCI students and UCI area residents to uh, vote all the way down, including the school board. And we've seen recently 
uh, how embarrassing a, a um, anti-science school board can be. Uh, the Orange County Board of Education has made international headlines with its like robustly anti-science ignorant views. And uh, you know, I've gotten calls and emails from people like from Korea and England just saying, what is going on in Orange County? Uh, so let's make sure that our school boards are, are um, filled with people that are pro-data, pro-expertise, pro-science. Uh, I think that's really important. And, and then water board, things like that. But vote all the way down ticket is, is kind of in our message. So we've done, we're doing a lot of joint activities with other candidates up and down ticket. In fact, this Thursday, I have an event with Katie Porter. You can look for information on that on our, uh, on our Facebook page or our website. Uh, we're doing a bunch of field events and Zoom events with uh, city council candidates and otherwise, because it's so important to vote all the way down the ticket. Uh, if I get elected to the state Senate, I want to have partners uh, that I can rely on to try to do the right thing. Is your campaign canvassing at residences at this point? We are not doing canvassing. We're doing uh, what we call doormat to doormat literature drops. Okay. So there, I, were, I... there are no, more, no conversations. Uh, so normally... Canvassing, we think of as, you know, taking some literature around, knocking on people's doors, uh, hopefully having a conversation with them and convincing them to vote for your candidate. If they're not home, then you just drop off a piece of literature. Uh, what we're doing now is uh, some literature dropping where people are dropping off uh, Dave Min for state Senate literature uh, at the door doorsteps of people's homes. Uh, but there is no door ringing or door knocking. There is no person-to-person uh, -person interface because we don't want uh, to endanger anyone's health. So yeah, I've noticed that at the press conference held by Orange County Board of Supervisors on Thursday, and there was in the chat column some observations that I could not corroborate, but there are candidates that this is their, they're on message by not showing up at the households with masks on. So there is a decision to canvas and there's a decision how people, what kind of optics they're using for canvassing. It's, so this leadership thing is, a, is big. Yeah, and we're well, not canvassing just to be clear and we're not doing uh, in-person fundraisers. Um, so uh, that also puts me at a steep um, divide from my opponent. So my opponent uh, has been doing a number of in-person fundraisers. He was one of the, I think he was the first person in the state to do in-person fundraisers, um, even when the guidance was fairly clear that this was a uh, high risk activity. Wow, that, that does complicate things, that, that disparity, that asymmetry. So I'd like to get back to policy. I, we have 12 propositions on the ballot and I think likely the most consequential one is Prop 15 that would assess commercial properties that reached, that started at a certain threshold above $3 million assessed value. I want to know what is your position, Dave Min, on Proposition 15? So in general, as a general rule, I do not like propositions. Um, I think that government by referendum is a terrible way to govern. Uh, and I think folks who study government tend to come to that conclusion. Uh, for the most part, because when, when, for example, should I get elected uh, and, and a bill comes up that has, you know, asks about, like, say, you know, um, uh, protecting puppy dogs. Uh, well, that sounds great. Everybody wants to protect puppy dogs. But what does that mean as far as trade-offs? Does that mean that we won't be protecting kitty cats as much, that we won't be protecting apple pie and the American flag? 
you know, the trade-offs involved in any particular legislation are important ones. Uh, you know, thoughtful legislation typically comes with a thoughtful balancing of, of some of the pros and cons, uh, who benefits, who loses. Uh, and when you have a referendum, the average voter simply doesn't have the time. I mean, I, I'm someone who, who spent my career in policy. Right. And I Googled, I Google every proposition and I still don't feel like I'm properly equipped most of the time to be able to really understand what a particular uh, referendum initiative or proposition is doing. And uh, when you look at who's funding these right now, for, you've got major special interests funding every single ballot initiative out there. And that's true every single year, because if you can amend the Constitution of California uh, in a way that benefits your business or your concern, uh, you're going to potentially get billions of dollars. And so what's, you know, $100 million or $50 million to spend to try to advance that. And so uh, generally speaking, I really don't like referendum. Generally, tend, in yeah. specific, do you have, have you, are you willing to give us a position on Prop well, and, 15? And so and Prop 15 is, is slightly different in that it is an amendment to Prop 13. And so Prop 13, of course, was passed in the 1970s and freezes property taxes at the rate, at the market assessment at which you bought them effectively. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with Prop 13, uh, once you buy a property, your, your property tax is essentially fixed at that moment in time that you acquire that property. It can only go up a maximum of 1% every year. Uh, and so what that does is it uh, freezes your uh, property tax assessment uh, at, at that rate. And so for folks like my parents who bought homes in the 70s and 80s, uh, they are you know, now paying uh, de minimis property taxes uh, on very, very expensive properties. And so that, that is a, you know, it's a trade-off in that those people get lower property taxes. Uh, developers have made the argument that it makes development more certain because they know that there's going to be a, a, a fixed property tax that they'll be facing going forward. And so those are some of the positives of Prop 13. Uh, the negatives, of course, are that one, it, it kind of freezes revenue for things like uh, schools and education and other priorities. Uh, and then two, at the same time, it, it, it can be thought of as almost like a tax on younger people and on newer entrants to California, because what happens when like Disneyland is paying, you know, de minimis taxes on uh, Disneyland or the properties it owns in, in Southern California, you know, well, that means necessarily that, that other people, particularly younger people and newer businesses, are going to pay more to sort of make up the difference. And uh, so those are the trade-offs you consider. Uh, I would urge everybody at home to, to look at this. Uh, this is actually not uh, something I have any more say so uh, than anybody else because this is a referendum. Right. Uh, so, you know, everyone will, should and can, can and should make up their own minds on this. Uh, the research is out there. I would urge people to, with this and every other initiative on the ballot, uh, look at it closely and think about what the trade-offs are um, because, you know, this is um, it's an important bill, like you said. Um, well, it's a know. driver of public education available funds that are ratcheting downward. So that's why I will, I'm single, I'm not going to go down the whole list, but I've thought that's a state financial <coughs> issue. And I wanted to see if you had made, if you're willing to put, give us a position on well, that. Well, if, 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 it, if it passes, you know, we will have more money for education. Um, but then certainly uh, certain businesses, particularly, I believe it applies to, you, you know this better than I do, but is it two and a half million? Or about million? three million. That's the. So small businesses or businesses that own properties that are valued at three million or more, 
uh, will uh, lose the cap that Prop 13 created. And so and those, those businesses, uh, Disneyland um, would be an example, probably like the Anaheim Angels, uh, other uh, businesses that have owned property for a while will see significant tax increases on the property that they own. Um, and the state will receive a lot more revenue for education and, and related priorities. Uh, so those are the trade-offs and I'd, I'd, I'd urge everyone to consider them. Again, I don't have any special say in this, so uh, it doesn't matter, you know, what I think. I would just, again, urge everyone to look at this uh, carefully. So, and and Prop 22, I don't know if you have any succinct answer that <laughs> wasn't already covered with your position generally on propositions. Do you have a position on Prop 22? What I say about Prop 22 is I'd look closely at who's funding it and how much. Anytime a group of businesses or other special interests uh, spend $100 million trying to get any referendum passed, um, you should ask why they're trying to do that. This would make a permanent change to the California Constitution uh, where it would allow for wage theft, intentional misclassification of workers as independent contractors, which is a growing problem across the state. If you talk to construction companies, general contractors, uh, and of course the gig companies, you see a lot of folks that should be thought of as employees that are being intentionally classified as independent contractors so that the employers can avoid paying uh, unemployment, paying, giving uh, health care or other benefits, uh, or even just maintaining certain standards around things like uh, workplace safety, uh, sexual harassment, and things like that. Uh, when you're an employer in this state and other states, it comes with certain responsibilities. Um, if you're, uh, on the other hand, hiring someone as an independent contractor, uh, many of those responsibilities don't exist. What this bill would do would essentially allow uh, almost every employer to um, intentionally classify people that should be seen as employees as independent contractors. Uh, and that would have profound consequences on California's economy that, that I think probably would be negative. Uh, so again, I, I don't want to take a position on this because it's not my job, but I would say that uh, people should do their research and, and before voting on this and ask why uh, a bunch of special interests are spending so much money to get this thing passed. Well, AB5 was a legislative measure and that you, you as a legislator would be involved in codifying some of these things. So there, it becomes your role at, at <coughs> many junctures. Let's just... I, well, like but if know, I could interrupt, this is not just about AB5. Prop 22 would also overturn the Dynamex Supreme Court decision. Okay, that's right. Good, good point. That's, listeners need to know this. So, Dave Min, what committees would you like to serve on as a state senator for representing the 37th? Well, I, I will get there if I win this election. I'll, I'll start there. Um, I suspect that because of my background in uh, financial regulatory um, oversight, uh, that I'd be on the banking committee, and because of my status as a UC professor, that I'd likely be on the education committee. Um, other than that, I'd like to, you know, cross that bridge should I get to it. I've got a close election to worry about first. Uh, should I be fortunate enough to win and represent the people of this district, uh, then I'll think about what committees to be on. But uh, if you look at what I care about the most right now, first is getting through COVID. Uh, second is about reversing climate change. Uh, and, and uh, addressing uh, education in the state. And, and then behind that all is maintaining a robust economy going forward. So those are my priorities, should I win and, and represent the people of SD 37. 
uh, I'd like to ideally have some committee assignments that reflect those priorities. Well, I always thank candidates for running for office. It's a one form of a, a service to the public. So I, I thank you like I thank all candidates for running for public office, Dave Min. Thank you so much, Claudia. I really appreciate you having me on today. Thank you. My guest was UCI Law School Professor Dave Min. He's a candidate for the California State Senate District 37 on this year's general election ballot. A reminder, vote by mail ballots are going out October 5th. Thanks again, Dave. Thank you, Claudia. And be safe, everyone. Uh, Stay healthy out there.